Okay, so today we're going to study uh, asymmetric information. It's our last week. And we're going to focus on signaling today. And I'll spell it with one L here as a concession to the Americans. All right, so we're going to look, we're going to divide this class into two parts. And for the first part, we're going to focus on the case where there is some verifiable, verifiable information in the problem. All right, so we'll see what this means in a while. Uh, but let me just set up an example, and we'll see where that takes us. So I want to return to a game we know well by this stage, which is the Corneau game. So there's two firms, and they're competing in Corneaux, so they're competing in quantities. And we'll call the firms A and B. And suppose that firm B has costs, so to be more formal, these are constant marginal costs, uh, equal to CM, where M means middle or medium or something. And firm A, firm A also has costs, but those costs could come in one of three types. It could be that firm A has high costs, and high costs are equal to middle costs plus a little bit. And it could be that firm A also has medium costs, and it could be that firm, B, uh, firm A has low costs. And the low costs are just the medium costs minus a little bit. All right. Now, before this competition is going to take place, before they're actually going to play the Corneau game, firm A has an opportunity. Firm A's opportunity is to reveal its costs to firm, uh, sorry, yeah, firm A has an opportunity to reveal its costs to firm B. So just to make, them, make this more explicit, initially, firm B obviously knows his own cost, and since there is only one type, firm A obviously knows those costs as well. So firm A and firm B know what firm B's costs are. But initially, although firm A knows her own costs, firm B does not know firm A's costs. All right, let's write that up. So firm B knows only its costs, and firm A knows both costs. All right. But the key decision we're going to focus on is that firm A has an opportunity to reveal its true costs to firm B. Now, it can do so in a verifiable way. For example, it could hire an accountant. That accountant from a reputable outside firm could come in and, and do the accounts for firm A and then publish them in the Wall Street Journal or something. All right? So firm A can do that. And let's assume it's costless for it to do that. All right? So firm A can costlessly and verifiably verifiably reveal its costs to be. And the question is, this is going to happen before they play Corneau, the question is, should firm A reveal those costs or not? Right? Should firm A publicize and give away its informational advantage, if you like, to firm B by telling firm B what its costs look like. All right. So what do people think? Let me just uh, 
grab the mic and ask people a little bit. Imagine you're the manager of firm, of firm A. Are you going to tell firm B what your costs are or not? You want to wave a hand on the air or should I just cold call here? Let me cold call. So, so what, what's your name, sir? Uh, you. You. And, 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 and uh, uh, so suppose you're the manager of firm A. Would you reveal the information or not? Uh, I would tell them only if my costs were lower. All right. So, so you says I would, I would reveal the information only if my costs were lower. Now, wh why, why do you want to reveal the costs if you have lower costs? Because then my firm's uh, will pr uh, produce at a lower cost, so firm B will um, produce less because they know that we'll get most of the market. Good, good. So the point, it's you, is that right? Yeah. So the point that you is making is there may be some advantage in having the other side know my costs if my costs are low, since that may induce the other side to produce less. Let's just fill out that argument by putting in the Corneau diagram. So here's the Corneau diagram. Here's the quantity for firm A. Here's the quantity for firm B. And here is the best response or reaction curve for firm B. All right? And in this picture, there's going to be three different possible reaction curves for firm A, each one corresponding to different costs. So for example, this could be the reaction curve or the best response for firm A in the case in which it's medium. All right? But if it had lower costs, what would happen to that reaction curve? Would it shift in? Would it tilt? What would happen to it? Someone shout it out? It would shift out. Or if it had lower costs, then it would shift out. So this would be the best response for firm A in the low case. And conversely, this would be the best response for firm A in the high case. All right? So the point that, uh, that you is, is making, or he should correct me if this is unfairly paraphrasing him, is if I have low costs, then I want the other side to know I have low costs, because that puts us into, a, into, the, into the equilibrium in which this is my best response curve, and this is the other side's best response curve, and firm B ends up producing less, end up, end up lowering, uh, 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 lowering its production. Is that right? Is that right? So the key idea here is that this is a game an idea we've had often. This is a game of strategic substitutes. So if I have low costs, I want the other side to know that I have low costs because it will cut back its production, which helps me. All right? On the other hand, if I have high costs, if I have high costs, then I'd kind of like to remain hidden. I, don't, I really don't want the other side to know that I have high costs. All right, because if I have high costs, then the other firm's actually going to increase their production, and that's going to hurt me. All right? But notice, I've twisted the question a little bit. The question I actually asked you was, would you reveal the information about your costs? And I've flipped that around to a slightly easier question, which is, what would I like the other side to know? All right? Now, what would I like the other side to know? I'd like the other side to know if I have low costs. I'd like the other side not to know if I have high costs. But that's not quite the question we asked. The question we asked was, would you, given whatever your costs are, reveal that information to the other side? And I think what you has told us is, uh, to say exactly what you said, if, you said, if I had low costs, I'm going to reveal it to the other side. Is that right? Is that right? So, 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 so far, what do we know? So far, we know. that if I have low costs, 
then I will reveal it. All right? So far we know that. But what if I don't have low costs? What if I have middling costs or high costs? Well, let's take these in, <coughs> in turn. What about, high, uh, what about middling costs? What should I do if I have middle, middle level costs? All right, so somebody's got their hand up. Let me go and take advantage of that. Hang on, I'll come back. What's your name? Shout out. Alec. Um, Shout it out so people can hear. Alec. Go ahead. Um, I think you should still reveal because they know if you had low costs, you would reveal. And so if you had uh, middle costs and you didn't reveal, then they could think that you either had middle costs or high costs, and it's better for you to just reveal that you had middle costs. Good, so. good. Did, everyone, did people hear that? Let me just repeat that, all right? So you might think, you might think that if I have middle costs, you might think that I could reveal or not reveal, depending on what the other side thought. However, what Alex is arguing correctly is if I don't reveal that I have middle costs, the other side, firm B, knows that my costs are not low. Right? The only way they could mistake me is they could think I'm a high-cost firm. They know I'm not a low-cost firm. How do they know I'm not a low-cost firm? Because the low-cost firm would have revealed. That was Yu's argument. Right? So since low-cost firms are revealing, if I'm a middle-cost firm, if I don't reveal, no one's in any doubt I'm not a low-cost firm. So all I could be is a middle-cost firm or a high-cost firm. All I could have is this reaction curve, which is the one I actually have, or this reaction curve. So if I don't reveal, then the other side might think that I have high, uh, that I have high costs, in which case they're actually going to increase their production and hurt me. Hang on a second. All right. So since, since the low-cost firm is going to reveal, the medium cost wants to reveal to ensure that no one thinks it's high costs. All right, so, that, so low cost reveals, and therefore, therefore, CM reveals as well. To prevent, to prevent being mistaken for a high cost firm. Now there was a question. Let me come down and collect the question. Yeah. Reveals to both the low and, and middle cost, then they're obviously going to know when he's a high cost, which means that the concealing doesn't do any good. Exactly, exactly. And your name is? Bethany. So Bethany's pointing out that once we know the low cost type's going to reveal, we know that the middle cost type is also going to reveal so as not to get mistaken for being high cost, which means if you're running a high cost firm, it really doesn't matter whether you reveal or not because you're going to be revealed by the fact that you didn't reveal. Is that right? right? Had you been low cost, you would have revealed. Had you been middle cost, you would have revealed. And therefore, whether you choose to reveal or not, everyone knows that you're high cost. So therefore, therefore, CH is revealed. Is revealed. Everyone see that? All right. OK. Now notice that in this argument we've just constructed, there were three types of firm, high, middle, low. But I could have constructed exactly the same argument, albeit somewhat more tediously, with 100, 100 types of firms. 
right? Firms that had absolutely the lowest cost, firms that had the 99th, uh, you know, the 99th highest cost, 98th highest cost, 97th highest cost, and so on. And this argument would have been exactly the same. At each stage, the firm that's left in the analysis who has the lowest cost will want to reveal to distinguish itself from those who haven't revealed, quote, yet, unquote, right? and therefore will get unraveling. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get information to be revealed. And notice, inter interestingly, we'll get information to be revealed beyond the median. Right? So the, 50, the 51st highest cost firm will reveal, therefore the 50th highest cost firm will reveal, therefore the 49th, and so on. In fact, the only firm who won't explicitly actively reveal themselves is the firm who has absolutely the highest cost, and as Bethany points out, they're going to be revealed anyway. All right, all right. So this is an idea. This idea is called informational unraveling. And again, in keeping for my American audience, I'm going to put one L in unraveling. Is that right? There's one L in America, right? Someone should just uh, check that on Google or something. I think that's correct. All right. All right. What's the lesson here? So one lesson is that this happens. We'll come back to that. But another lesson, perhaps a more important lesson, is often the lack of information, the lack of somebody signaling to you, the lack of somebody trying to tell you something conveys information. Right? This was the point that Bethany was making. The fact that the high-cost firm doesn't, in fact, go out and reveal information to you reveals something about what it knows. All right? So Yu's initial comment was correct. If I was the high-cost firm, I'd like to remain hidden, but I can't remain hidden. Right? But from your point of view as the receiver of the information, there's information in the lack of the attempt to convey information. So lesson, the lack of a signal, the lack of an attempt of a firm to signal you some information, the lack of a signal can be informative. So this is an often forgotten lesson. It's a very simple idea, but there's a natural tendency when you're dealing with information to focus on the evidence that is there rather than the evidence that's not there. All right? There's an expression that goes with this. Uh, uh, the expression is, uh, silence speaks volumes. All right? You've all heard that expression, silence speaks volumes. All right? Let me give you one other example. All right? So there's a, there's a Sherlock Holmes story. By the way, do you all know who Sherlock Holmes is? Yeah, good. Okay, so there's a Sherlock Holmes story in which Sherlock Holmes solves the murder. He figures out who did the murder. And Dr. Watson, who's his sidekick, is trying to figure out how Holmes could possibly have solved the murder. And he says, how did you solve the murder? And Holmes says, it's because of the, it's because of the barking dog. All right? And, and Watson says, what do you mean it's because of the barking dog? The dog didn't bark. Right? And Holmes says that's exactly the point. The fact that the dog didn't bark, didn't make any sound, tells us who must have committed the murder. Right? It's very easy to fall into the trap of being Watson and to ignore the thing that didn't happen and focus on the things that did happen. So here, it's easy to forget that actually the high-cost firm is revealed by doing nothing. All right? So this is the idea that silence can speak volumes. Every year I go back and try and figure out what that quotation is from, and I can never find it. So anybody who finds it, I will, I will give them a prize of some sort. I, I, originally I thought it must be Shakespeare, but it doesn't appear to be. All right. 
So this is a little example involving Corneau, but I want to try and convince you, hang on a second, I want to try and convince you that this example is more general. Let's, let's pick up the question. Uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, isn't it possible that there's a, an equilibrium where it's uh, the, the cost of remaining hidden as a middle cost uh, firm outweighs the benefit, I mean outweighs not, well, not, 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 not if we take the model literally, not if we take the model on Corno literally, because if you, if, uh, suppose, suppose the firm B doesn't know whether you're high or middle, then he's going he's gonna to think your cost is somewhere in between, right? and, that, and relative to your cost being middle, he's going to produce more. That's the point here. Now, it's true that in a richer model, there may be some other advantage in having information hidden, but that would have already applied to the low-cost firm. Let, let me give you some other examples, and we'll see, we'll see this in other contexts and see that it might actually uh, ring true. All right. So one other example uh, involves uh, uh, resumes. All right. So this example requires some explanation for the non-Americans. How many of you are non-Americans here? All right. So one thing you need to know as non-Americans is the way in which people write resumes in America. You know what a resume is, right? A CV or resume, right? So when you look at a typical resume from an American student, if you're not American, for those of you who aren't American, um, how should I put this politely? Um, it has a tendency to make you want to vomit. That, 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 yeah, okay, so that, that's basically the polite version of what I was going to say about that. Uh, all right, so, so why does it have a tendency to make you want to vomit? Because Americans have a tendency to put down everything on their resume. So if they were, if they were uh, captain of the chess team in third grade, and there they are now, they're 40 and applying for a job, it still says, I was captain of the chess team in third grade. And this is particularly true when it comes to public service, when it comes to sort of moral acts. All right, so most people in Europe will be a bit embarrassed about writing their good deeds on their resumes, but Americans, there's a little spot on their resume which is about their good deeds or their public service, and they put everything. You know, when I was eight, I helped a little, lady, a little old lady across the road with her shopping basket, <laughs> and there it is on their resume, right? right? So why? Why is it that Americans reveal so much information on their resume? All right, well, think about informational unraveling, right? So resumes are verifiable information. It's, a, it's, a, it's hugely costly to be caught cheating about your resume. So basically, you're not going to lie on a resume. All right? And imagine if I'm uh, a, a admitting students, let's say, to law school, to Yale Law School, and I'm reading the student's resume. And in the spot where I'm expecting to see public service, there's nothing written there. All right? What do I assume about that student? What do I assume about that student? I assume that the, the, the person did nothing, right? This person has been a self-serving evil get their entire life, right? Has never even helped a little old lady across the road, all right? So people put down everything, even these minimal things, even these pretty um, shockingly tiny acts of charity, to reveal themselves from those people who did absolutely nothing that are basically the devil incarnate, all right? <laughs> all right? All right? So this is about resumes. Let's just take this a bit further. How many of you are from Los Angeles? Right, so in Los Angeles, I'm, I'm led to, I'm told, you can, you can confirm this or not, there are lots and lots of restaurants. Right, this is true, right, lots of restaurants. And some of these restaurants are good and some of them are bad. And more to the point for today's, today's example, some of these restaurants are clean and some of them are not so clean. Right, is this true? Is this true? Yeah? Okay. So it turns out that until the late 90s, the Los Angeles uh, municipality uh, rules, local law, said that every restaurant in Los Angeles County, I think it was, had to get visited by the health inspector. And the health inspector would come around, I think it was annually, and go to these restaurants, and they would issue a certificate. And this was a health certificate, and written on it in large le letters, let's say, I think it were red letters, was uh, either A or B, 
or C. Right? Maybe, maybe even have been A minuses as well. But for the purpose of the story, let's just call it A, B, and C. All right? Now, that was all the law said. The law did not say that you had to display your health certificate anywhere. All right? So what does this model tell us to expect about Los Angeles in the mid-90s? Well, if, you have, if you're running a little restaurant in Los Angeles and you get an A health certificate from your restaurant, from, your, from the health inspector, what are you going to do with that A certificate? You're going to display it prominently in the window, right? A health certificate. All right? So if you're running a slightly less healthy restaurant, maybe this is Ale's pizza chain again, all right? Uh, and, you, and you still get a B certificate from the Los Angeles health inspector, are you going to display it or not? You're going to display it, right? Because, because why not? We know the A's are going to display, right? These certificates are being, being given to everybody, so you're going to display even a B certificate. Now, I'm told from people who lived in Los Angeles at the time that you could go round to the greasiest spoon in Los Angeles and look through these grease-smeared windows with sort of cockroaches running all up and down them, and if you look carefully behind the cockroaches and the grease, you'd see a certificate displayed that said C on it, right? right? Presumably there was a D grade as well. Even the Cs were displaying, all right? So that's pretty dramatic information unraveling. Now, I'm exaggerating slightly uh, for, to, make a, to make a separate point. It turns out that it, in, in certain areas of Los Angeles, you'd expect to see these health certificates displayed, even the Cs, right? And in other areas, you wouldn't expect to see the Cs displayed. Which areas would you expect not to see people bothering displaying their C or B minus certificates? Any guesses? The tourist areas, right? The tourist areas. Because for this, for this story about information unraveling to work, the people who are the receivers of the information need to know that you got the certificates. Right? So if you're a tourist in Los Angeles, you don't know this, this system's in place, and therefore, you, you know, if, if, you're a, if you're a C certificate you know, right next to Disneyland or something, whatever it is, right, you, 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 can still pick, you, you can still make some tourists ill without having to tell them you're, you're about to do so. All right? All right? So that's a second example. Let me give a third example a little bit closer to home. At the last curriculum reform at Yale, there was a big debate about what to do with credit defail. All right? And one of the proposals for credit defail was to allow students to take courses credit defail, but if they ended up getting an A or a B, they could display the A or the B on, the, on their resume. Right? So they take it credit defail, but if they got a grade, like an A or a B or an A minus, whatever, then they, they could opt in and have it put on their resume. What's wrong with that? This is a serious proposal. This was made, you know, I was on this committee, right? This was seriously made. Right? So I, I didn't make the proposal, but this was made, right? What's wrong with this proposal? What's wrong with the proposal? What would, what, would, what would displaying credit on your transcript come to mean? It would come to mean C, right? It would come to mean C. Because all the A's and the B's would un unravel that information. All right? So information can, if information is verifiable and can be freely transmitted, it has a way of coming out. It has a way of coming out. Let me give you one slightly more serious example. Uh, as you all know, if you're arrested in the US, you should know this, you have the right to remain silent. I'm not saying you're all about to get arrested, but were you to be arrested, you have the right to remain silent. Right? That right was true in Britain as well until recently, when the government, which isn't so big on civil liberties, changed the rules slightly. So now you have the right to remain silent in Britain, silent in Britain, but the court has the right to take into account as evidence if you remain silent. All right? So what's that done to the right to remain silent? Well, I'll leave it to you to figure out what that's done to the right to remain silent. <laughs> All right, so this is, this is an, uh, an area 
this, this idea that information unravels depended on certain key parts. And the most important part was that the information was verifiable. It mattered that the information was verifiable, and to get full unraveling all the way down, in this case, to the highest cost firm, you needed the people on the receiving side of the information to actually know that that information was there. So to get the full unraveling, you really need something like common knowledge of the presence of the information. All right? All right. But often, the information that you have, you have information, you want to reveal that information, but unfortunately, it's not so easily verifiable. So what we're going to focus on for the rest of the day is information that is not verifiable. All right. And let's start with an example that's pretty close to home. A lot of you have been doing job interviews recently. How many of you have been going out either doing interviews for internships or jobs? And I know a lot of you are missing class, so I'm assuming charitably that's what you were doing. All right? All right. So uh, when you go to these job interviews, you can imagine that you're turning up for some job interview. Let's say it's at Boring Bank of Boston. All right? And you turn up at this bank, uh, interview for Boring Bank of Boston. And one of the things that Boring Bank of Boston wants to know is, are you interested in working for Boring Bank of Boston? All right? That's a plus for them. All right? So what they tend to do is they ask you, they ask you, uh, more or less, they say, are you interested in working for Boring Bank? All right? Now, by the way, if you are asked the question, are, and you're interviewing for Boring Bank, and you're asked the question by them, uh, are you interested in working for Boring Bank, what answer should you give? You should answer yes. All right? How much information is there in the fact you answer yes? None at all, right? Because clearly you want the option of, of working for this bank, so you're going to answer yes anyway. Now, you may think this is just a fictional example. It's not. I talked to some recruiters from a bank in Boston that we'll refer to as Boring Bank in Boston uh, uh, not so long ago, and I asked them about hiring Yale undergraduates and what Yale undergraduates do to impress them, and the recruiter, who was a, a Yale graduate himself, said to me that, frankly, Yale undergraduates uh, do less well in these interviews than Harvard undergraduates. And I said, you know, shattered and disappointed, I said, why? And he said, well, when we asked them if they're interested in working for Boring Bank of Boston, the Yale guys say things like, well, I don't know, it sounds kind of boring. <laughs> All right? And the Harvard guys, what do they do? They show up with the Wall Street Journal folded over conveniently on the page about Boring Bank of Boston, and sometimes they're wearing you know, a silly hat with I'm boring on it. All right? <laughs> so I, I tried to persuade this guy that despite this fact, there's, no, there's really no information in the fact that the Harvard guys are telling this, and in fact, you should hire the Yale people because at least they were honest, and hey, that might make the bank less boring in the future. Right? <laughs> this didn't work. Right? So I need to persuade you guys to actually uh, cough up and be dishonest here. All right? All right? There's a lesson here. So one lesson is, if you're asked by an interviewer at one of these uh, for a summer internship or for a job later, if you want to work for them, the answer is yes. All right? It's one of the few questions which the answer is not backward induction. It's just yes. <laughs> All right? All right? There's a secondary lesson here, which is, if an, interview, if an interviewer for, your, for a bank is asking you in the interview if you'd like to work for them, you probably answer yes, but you probably want to work somewhere else. 
right? If they're dumb enough to ask you that question, you probably want to work for someone else. All right, but this is a real, this is a real problem. The problem is, here you are, you have some information you'd like to convey. Maybe you really are boring. Maybe you really do want to work for this bank. You want to convey this information, but it's hard for you to persuade the employer uh, that, that this is true, because anybody can say they want to work for the bank. Right? And more generally in life, it isn't only about whether you want to work for a particular bank or whatever it happens to be. It's also about whether you are a good worker or not. All right. So let's try and, uh, uh, try and think about this in the context of not of workers being boring or not, but workers being good or not. All right? So we're going to look at a costly signaling model. It's going to turn out. This model is going to be about costly signaling. And just for the purpose of the model, we're going to assume that there are two kinds of workers in America. There are good workers. We'll call them G. And there are bad workers, and we'll call them B. All right? And we'll assume that the productivity of a good worker, if you work for this firm, is going to be 50. And we can assume this is $50,000 or whatever, but let's, just, let's, just, let's forget units for now and just call it 50. And a bad worker, their productivity is only 30. All right? So clearly, all other things being equal, the employer would rather employ a good worker or a bad worker. And all other things being equal is important because then we have to pay the good worker more. All right? Let's assume this is the US economy. So roughly 10% of the economy are good workers and 90% are bad workers, something like that. All right? These are the proportions in the US. All right? And let's also assume that firms are competitive. Right, so firms are flooding into the Yale Careers Office or the Yale Careers Fair, and they're just desperately trying to hire these workers. There's competitive hiring going on. All right? So firms, firms compete for workers. So they're going to pay 50 to a worker they identify as good. They pay 50 to a worker they, the firms, identify as good. And they're going to pay 30 to workers they identify as bad. All right, if, you, if you're bothered by this being exact, think of it as 50 minus a penny and 30 minus a penny. It, it's not going to make any difference to the analysis. All right? So if they can't identify a worker, then if they can't identify a worker, they think the worker's just the average worker, how much, will, uh, how much will the competitive wage be? What will be the competitive wage of the average worker in this economy? Right, so it's, not a, it's not a hard math question. Everyone's scratching their head down here. All right, so this is, this is uh, what is it? It's 50 times 10% and 30 times 90%, which averages out as 32%, all right? So they'll pay, they'll pay the average, which is 32, to a worker they cannot identify. Now, clearly, in this model, much like in the high-cost firms uh, we, we started with, the good workers would like to be identified. Is that right? Because they get paid more. And the bad workers do not want to be identified. Is that right? right? They'd, ra they'd rather remain hidden. 
All right. The problem here, however, is that typically isn't a verifiable piece of information. It's, it's hard to verifiably communicate to the other side that you're a good worker. So you guys are all good workers, right? You wouldn't be here otherwise, we hope. All right. So you, you show up to this firm. This firm is looking for good workers. And you can tell the firm, I'm a good worker. In fact, I'm, I'm betting most of you have tried doing that in your job interviews. Right? I'm a good worker. You could even do this in a costly manner. Right? You, could, you could humiliate yourself by jumping up on the table and dancing on one leg while singing some song about how you're a good worker, All right? which would be humiliating, but it wouldn't, in fact, communicate to the firm that you were a good worker. Why is it that you're dancing this beautiful jig on the table of the interview room, singing this beautiful song about how you're a good worker? Why doesn't that convince the firm that you're a good worker? Who's been in job interviews recently? Has anyone tried this? <laughs> How, why, is that not a con, why is that not a successful strategy? Yeah, so, so uh, it's St Stephen, is that right? So sh shout out. A bad worker could do that too. A bad worker could do that too. All right? So it's true that it's costly and humiliating to dance up on the table on one leg and sing you're a good worker, but it's no more costly and humiliating for you than it is for a bad worker. So if that worked, a bad worker would do it too. All right, so merely a song and dance isn't going to work. All right, merely a song and dance isn't going to work. It's going to be hard to signal to the outside world that you're a good worker. All right, so that's going to be our starting point. All right. So we need a way for good workers to distinguish themselves from bad workers. We need a way for them to signal. And what's key about that signal is it has to be a signal that they can make and a bad worker cannot make. Or, or alternatively, a signal that they will want to make, but a bad worker will not want to make. All right? So dancing on the table doesn't do it. And the reason it doesn't do it is bad workers and good workers are symmetric with respect to the dishonor of dancing on the table. All right? Right? So we need a way for good workers, you guys, to distinguish yourself from bad workers, us guys. All right? All right? How in the American economy, what's the main way in the American economy in which good workers signal the fact that they're good, that they manage to distinguish themselves? What's the main signal used in the US economy? Somebody? Yes, yeah, so ed education. All right? So the main signal, the main signal in the US, not the only one by any means, but the main signal is education. What's going to distinguish the good workers from the bad workers is the good workers are going to have degrees, more degrees, better degrees, more degrees, whatever. All right? So what we're going to look at today is a model some of you have seen before, but we'll do it in a bit more detail perhaps. Uh, it's a model due to a guy called Spence, Mike Spence, who actually won the Nobel Prize uh, in large part for this model. The reason we know he won the Nobel Prize in large part for this model is he didn't write practically anything else. So it must have been for this model. <laughs> All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to imagine that the degree, the education that these people are going to get that's going to distinguish themselves and show that they're good workers to the employers. It's, a, it's assumed that the employees, once again, are banks, whatever. We're going to assume 
that the extra piece of education they're going to get is an MBA. Some of you up there are getting an MBA. Uh, where's my MBA? There he is. Where's my MBA student up there? All right? All right? So the good workers are going to get an MBA. All right? And the way this is going to work, the way this is going to work, it's going to work on the cost of getting an MBA. So it's got to, to, to get this to be a successful signal, to make this signal different from merely dancing on the table, it's either got to be the case that bad workers cannot get an MBA, or it's got to be the case that it's so costly for bad workers to get an MBA that they won't bother. All right? So we're going to make the difference in costs. All right? So we're going to suppose, we're going to suppose that the cost, the cost per year of getting an MBA, of, going, of, of, uh, of being in business school, so of MBA education, of MBA education is five, five units if you're a good worker. And we're going to assume that the cost per year of going to SOM and getting a, a, an MBA is a little bit over 10, so 10 and a penny, if you're a bad worker. So notice, I've assumed in this model that it's more costly per year to get an MBA at Yale, say, if you're a bad worker than a good worker. Now, what are those costs? What are the costs of getting an MBA? What's, what's causing that cost difference? Well, let's be clear what it isn't. It can't be the fees. The fees are a large part of the cost. So the fees, what are the fees of getting an MBA at Yale this year? Way too much, all right, all right? So the costs per year, in terms of fees, are enormous, but the fees themselves are not going to do a good job of distinguishing between good and bad workers. Why? Because they're the same for both parties, right? We want, the, we want something which is differently costly. So this is not, this is not the fees. It can't be the fees. They're the same for both parties. What other costs are there? What other costs are there to, get to getting an education? There's opportunity cost, right? All of you are economists, or half of you are economics majors. So the first thing you should spring to mind is opportunity costs. All right? But actually, opportunity costs don't help me here much. Because if anything, you'd think that the opportunity costs of going and getting an MBA at Yale are higher if you're a good worker than if you're a bad worker. After all, if you're a good worker, you could stay home, not get an MBA, farm your, farm your parents' garden, all right? And you, since you're such a good worker, you'd have a high yield in carrots and whatever. All right? All right? All right? So whereas the bad workers are you know, not going to produce anything, right? So this is not really about opportunity cost. In fact, we'll assume that there's zero. We'll assume there are no opportunity costs. So what is it that's driving this cost difference between the good, uh, the good worker at SOM and the bad worker at SOM. Okay, somebody had a, was that an, a potential answer out there? Yeah. Yeah. Is it the, the present value of future wages for a good worker? Ah, okay, so, that, so, so there we're thinking about the future. No, let's just focus on the cost side. Let's focus on the cost side. You're, you're right, there's gonna be different things going on in the future, but let's focus on the cost side. Uh, I had you before, so let's have this guy. Um, mental effort. Men mental effort, right? Mental effort. So where's my MBA student up there? Here he is. Where, where is he up, up there? All right. It's pain and suffering, right? Right? And you can't see him yet. There he is. 
It's pain and suffering, that right? He's nodding, good, right? right? It's having, it's having to, when you go to the MBA class, of thinking, my God, I, thank goodness I escaped being an undergraduate, and you go back to the, M the MBA class, and I'm there again, right? I'm seeing the same horrible problem sets, and you still can't read my handwriting, and you still gotta deal with my accent, right? <laughs> good workers find it easier to read my handwriting and deal with my accent, right? All right, all right? So what it is, it's, it's, it's the mental effort, it's the pain and suffering, it's the pain of the work. It's the pain of the work. All right? All right? The only thing that distinguishes the costs of good workers from bad workers in education is it's so painful to do the work. If we went to a party school, right, this wouldn't work. Right? That's why we can't just have party schools. We actually have to put you through some, some pain uh, in the classroom. I'm looking for uh, some confirmation from up there. All right? Right? So the pain of the work is what distinguishes these things. Okay. Now, I claim, I claim that we could have an equilibrium in this society in which there are good and bad workers, in which good workers' cost per year is less than bad workers' cost per year of getting, in this case, an MBA. We could do the same for undergraduate education, but let's focus on the MBA for now. I claim there's an equilibrium in this society, there could be an equilibrium, in which uh, getting an MBA takes three years. Right? So I claim, I claim there is an equilibrium here, an equilibrium in which what happens? In which there are three-year degrees, degrees take three years, three-year MBA sounds a bit frightening, but never mind, all right, in which the good workers all get MBAs and the bad workers do not. All right? But to tell you this is an equilibrium, I need to do a little bit more, so let me tell you one other thing. So I claim there's an equilibrium in which the degrees take three years, all the good workers get MBAs, all the bad workers do not get MBAs, and what? And the employees, the employers, identify MBAs as good workers. Right? To make this work, it has to convince the employers. So to make it work, I need and the employers identify MBA equals good and not MBA equals bad. All right? So that's why I claim is an equilibrium here. And we, what I want to do is I want us to show that this actually is an equilibrium. All right, now then, this is a slightly different kind of equilibrium to anything we've seen in the class so far. So I'm gonna be a little bit slow and nerdy about what we need to check to check that this indeed is an equilibrium. All right, so I'm gonna leave some space on the board and you should leave some space too. All right, so my claim is this is an equilibrium and well, we're doing guess and check. I did the guess for you and we'll do the check together. To check, I claim I need to check two things, two things, all right? One, 
I need to check that no type will deviate. So what do I mean by a type? I mean types of worker. Neither the good types of workers will want to deviate, nor the bad types of worker will want to deviate. So this isn't new. We've all, when we've checked equilibrium, we've always checked that people don't want to deviate. The only slight difference here is instead of checking that people won't want to deviate, I'm checking that types of people won't want to deviate. But basically, the idea is the same. Is that right? The idea is the same. So this is not really new. The new thing, the new thing is, I also need to check. I shall give myself a bit more room here. I also need to check. I need to check that the employer's beliefs, the employer's beliefs are consistent. consistent with the equilibrium behavior. All right? So let's just stop and pause at that a second. We've never written down a condition like this for equilibrium, but here I have to. Here, there was asymmetric information in the model, and in this equilibrium, one important party to the equilibrium, namely the guys who are going to employ you, that's pretty important, right? All they really have to do in this model of any importance is form an inference based on your actions. Right? They observe whether you get an education or not, and they conclude whether or not you're a good or bad worker. Right? So we're going to write down as a condition of this being an equilibrium that those inferences, quote, make sense, unquote. And by make sense, I mean that they're consistent with what actually is happening in equilibrium. So before we get too nerdy about that, let's just think why that's a sensible thing to, to, to require. Suppose, in fact, suppose the world was like this. All good workers got MBAs. All bad workers did not get MBAs. And employers thought that the people who got MBAs were half good and half bad. All right? Now that, just, that just doesn't sound right, right? It's, if, in fact, it's the case, that it's the good workers who are getting MBAs and the bad workers who are not, then the only belief that the employers can have that's consistent is the MBAs are, in fact, the good workers and the non-MBAs are the bad workers. Is that right? So I'm not making any deep point here. I'm just pointing out that we, we need to make sure that the beliefs that people hold in this equilibrium are consistent with what's actually going on in the equilibrium. Now, having said that, there's no mystery here. Everything's fine. In this particular claim of an equilibrium, Good workers are the ones who got the MBAs. Bad workers are the ones who didn't get the MBAs. And the employers, when they see an MBA, indeed think they're good. And when they see a non-MBA, they indeed think they're bad. So these beliefs are, in fact, consistent with behavior. So we're OK. OK, so I've had to check that, but it wasn't a big deal. Right, everyone OK about why I'm checking it? I, I don't want people to hold silly beliefs at equilibrium. That's basically what I'm saying. All right. Now let's go back and check the, the, check the sort of bread and butter thing. The bread and butter thing is we need to check that no type of worker is going to want to deviate in this equilibrium. So there's two types of worker. There's good workers. And good workers, what are they doing in equilibrium? What are the good workers doing in equilibrium? 
they're getting an MBA, right? So the good workers, they become MBAs. And what are the good workers identified as? Once they've got an MBA, what does the employer identify them as? Good workers, right? They're identified as good. They get MBAs. They're identified as good. And their payoff, their payoff is what? What's the payoff of the good workers here? So they get paid, they get paid 50, which is their productivity, but it cost them three years of putting up with my homeworks, so it cost them three times five, right, five, five for each year, so 50 minus three times five is what? 50 minus three times five is? 35, good, okay, so this, they get a total payoff of 35, all right? And let me just pause a second. I made an assumption here without telling you it, so I'm going to say it. Uh, just, to make the, just to make the math simple, we'll assume that once you get employed, you work for a year, and then you drop dead, all right? That's a slightly morbid and unpleasant assumption, but otherwise, otherwise we have to do kind of present discounted value of your whole future income, and it turns into an accounting class, okay? So we'll just assume everybody lives for one year, okay? If you want to do a more complicated model, then that's fine. The idea will be the same. Right? So they get paid 50, it's cost them three times five, and they get a total payoff of 35. All right? How about if they deviate? If they deviate, that means they don't get MBAs, so they're not MBAs. They're identified what? If they don't get, MBA, if they don't get an MBA, what are they identified as? What does the employer think the non-MBAs are? Bad, all right? So they deviate then the employers think they're bad, even if they dance on the table and say they're good. They're in fact bad, they're identified as bad. And so their payoff is what? What are they gonna get paid? They're gonna get paid 30, and sure enough, 35 is bigger than 30, so they're not gonna want to deviate. All right, so that's good news. What about the bad workers? Let's check them. So the bad workers, in equilibrium, they're not MBAs, they don't get an MBA, they're identified as bad, and they're paid what? What are they paid to these bad workers? Somebody? They're paid 30, right? They're paid, their, they're paid their productivity, so their payoff is just 30. They didn't get an education, so it was free. They get 30 for free, so their payoff is just 30. If they deviate, if the bad workers deviate, then they get an MBA. So here come the bad workers. They find their way into my class, an SOM. They have a miserable time. I have a miserable time because they're having a miserable time. But at the end of the day, they're identified as good workers. They're identified as good workers. And hence, they're paid 50. And their payoff is 50 minus three times 10.01, 10 and a penny, which is approximately 20. Is that right? So they don't want to deviate either. And now I've done, now I'm done, I've shown it's an equilibrium. So just to recap, to show that this was an equilibrium, I had to show that the good workers happily self-select into education and don't want to deviate and skip business school. I have to show that the bad workers 
self-select into not getting an education and don't want to deviate and become uh, MBAs. And I have to show that the employers infer from this what they should infer from this, which was fine. All right? So I'm done. This is indeed an equilibrium. All right? So notice, in this equilibrium, the good workers do manage to distinguish themselves from the bad workers, and they do end up getting paid more, albeit at the cost that they're going to die a year later. All right? So this is called a separating equilibrium. Which I can never spell. I'm sure I'm spelling this wrong. Never mind. It's a separating equilibrium. All right? Why is it called a separating equilibrium? It's called a separating equilibrium because the types manage to separate and get identified. That's slightly misleading. The good types manage to separate and get identified, and the bad types, they don't want to get separated, but they do get separated. All right. Now, how many of you have seen some version of the Spence model before? Some of you, right? right? Let's go into this in a little bit more detail to see if we've really understood it. Okay. So in particular, uh, actually, let's get rid of that one. There we go. In particular, could we get away with a shorter degree? Here we had people going to get MBAs, and it took them three years each. All right. That seems an awful long time to get an MBA. So how about how about a one-year a one-year MBA? Right? And some of you might be uh, think this is just some, some kind of abstract example, but actually this is the kind of thing you hear about all the time. If you read, uh, if you listen to ads in the education press, you keep on hearing schools. Uh, perhaps schools who lack economics professors, uh, putting up uh, the proposals for one-year MBA degrees. Right? I won't mention any schools by name because I'll probably get in trouble. All right? So how about a one-year MBA? Let's see if that will work and will allow good workers to separate themselves from bad workers. Let's assume that the costs per year are the same as they were before. All right? And let's suppose that this candidate equilibrium, this putative equilibrium, involves the good workers getting the MBAs, the bad workers not getting an MBA, and the employers, just as before, identifying MBAs as good and non-MBAs as bad. Question, is that an equilibrium? Is that an equilibrium? So who thinks yes? Who thinks no? All right, so you can all tell me why then. So the answer is no. So why is that not an equilibrium? Why is that not an equilibrium? Somebody? Anybody? Why is that not an equilibrium? Someone hasn't answered yet today. Yeah, here we go. So your, and your name is? Um, Osman. Osman, so shout out. Um, shout out. Uh, Louder. <laughs> the bad workers would also benefit from doing the MBA because um, their payoff is still greater. Good, good. So what's wrong in this equilibrium, it's not the employer's beliefs. Right? If, in fact, people did follow this behavior, then employers would be right to identify MBAs with good. It's also not the good workers' problem. If, in fact, employers are going to pay more to MBAs, then the good workers are still going to, uh, uh, even more so, are going to want to go ahead and get MBAs. The problem here, right, this is not an equilibrium. 
It's not an equilibrium. And the problem is the bad workers. The bad workers' incentives are wrong here. Right? Why? Because if the bad workers do what they're supposed to do in this equilibrium, in this equilibrium, actually it isn't an equilibrium, but in this supposed equilibrium, what they're supposed to do is not get an MBA and get a payoff of 30. All right? But if they went and got an MBA, if they deviate, if they deviate, and no one else deviates, just them deviating, if they deviate, they get an MBA. According to the equilibrium, they're now identified as good workers. They're identified as, as good. And so their payoff would be 50 minus one year at approximately 10 for a total payoff of 40, but 40 is higher than 30, so that's violated our equilibrium condition. Everyone see that? Right? So here, the bad workers, if it only took one year of pain and suffering to get an MBA, the bad workers would go and get an MBA as well, and that would be trouble because now everyone gets an MBA and it's just like dancing on the table again. Right? So how long must an MBA be? In this model with this cost structure, how many years must it take to get an MBA? Two years, right? right? One year didn't work, but you can try at home and check that a two-year two MBA, two MBA will work. Two years will be just enough to put off the bad workers. Leaving aside the numbers, though, what's the idea here? The idea is that to work as a successful signal, the signal has to separate the good workers from the bad workers. The workers have to choose to be separated. They have to self-select into being MBAs or not being MBAs. And we need, we need just enough pain and suffering, and let's be careful, just enough difference in pain and suffering for the workers to select correctly. All right? So what we need, what we need, we need enough difference difference in cost for good workers to get the degree and for bad workers not to want to do so. So one thing we could do is have a two-year degree. How else, if you, were, if you were absolutely insisted on having a one-year degree, how could you create a difference in costs that would work. Suppose you were, suppose you were uh, employed to advise some university out in the West somewhere who wants to have a one-year degree program, all right? What should you do in that one-year degree program to make it work, to make it allow people to separate? Raising tuition isn't going to work, right, because that's the same for good and bad workers. You need a way to separate the good and bad workers. How are you going to do it? You're going to make it really hard. Right? If you want to have a one-year degree program, it's got to be really hard. You've got to really jack up the difference between the good and the bad workers. So you need to hire professors who have really bad handwriting. Right? All right. Let's try and take a step back from this model and see what works, uh, see what we've learned here. 
All right, let's just try and draw some lessons off this. And I want to draw two kinds of lessons. I want to draw lessons in general about what makes a good, what makes a successful signal in society. And then I want to draw lessons about education. So I want to start with some nerdy lessons about game theory, if you like. And then I want to talk about some more, more specific lessons about the education system. So the key lesson here is the lesson we just learned. The key lesson is to be a successful signal, to be able to separate types of people, you need there to be large differences in cost. All right? So the first lesson is a good signal It isn't that it has to be costly, it ha it's that it has to be differentially costly. It needs to be differentially, differentially costly across types. And the reason is you want the types to self-select, so there better be differences in costs. Be a little bit careful here. You could have differences in benefits, but we'll leave it as cost limit. All right. That's one lesson. All right. Now, what's that telling us in this model? That's telling us that if you make it very, very easy to obtain qualifications in the US society, for example, if you lower the standards that you need to get a high school degree, and perhaps you lower the standards to get a college degree. I'm not, saying, I'm, not, I'm not saying that is happening. I don't want to take a political position on this. In England, that's happening. I can, I can do that. Okay, in England, that seems to be happening. Right, so you lower the standards it takes to get a, a high school certificate in England, and then you perhaps lower the standards to get a college degree. What are you going to see happen? What are you going to see happen? You're going to see qualification inflation. If you make it easy for everybody to get the first degree, the good workers are going to go on and have to get a second degree. If you make it easy to get the second degree, they're going to go on and get the third degree. All right? So what this model predicts is if you, if, you, if you get rid of this cost difference, then workers will find a new way to raise the cost difference again. All right? And the way that takes place, at least in, in, in some economies, is you start seeing qualification inflation. And by qualification inflation, I mean that pretty soon, even to drive a dump truck, you need to have a university degree. All right? Okay. Now, what are the lessons here for education more generally? This is a pretty sparse model of education, but uh, all of you, and more, more immediately me, are involved in the education system, so we should care about it a bit. It's probably the most famous model of education. As I say, it won somebody the Nobel Prize. What is it telling us about education? So the first thing I claim, I claim that this is a rather pessimistic model of education. 
Why is this a pessimistic model of education? What's pessimistic about this model? Let's talk about that a bit. Anybody? Or some, some hands up, some different hands. Why is, why is this a pessimistic model of education? Way, way over there. Good, I get your hand in another part of the room. It'll, it'll give uh, the camera a workout anyway. All right. All right. Good, good. So, so shout, shout that into the microphone, but that was right. You don't learn anything at school in this model. Right, right. This is a model with no learning. There's no learning in this model. All right? It, in fact, people in this model go in with their productivities at 50 and 30, and they come out with their productivities at 50 and 30. Nothing you do at school enriches you or makes you more productive. That's a pretty pessimistic lesson. Here we are in lecture number, what is this, lecture number 23 or something? Right? And the message of this, of this model is, you guys haven't learned anything, you've just had a lot of pain and suffering. All right? All right? So there's no learning in this model. There's no learning. All right? Now I hope, I hope that's not true as a model of education. Right? I hope it's not true that we only have pain. All right? But never, nevertheless, let's pretend it's true, at least for now, and see where it takes us. So a second observation of this model, if we believe this model of education in which you don't learn anything, education is just being used by those people who are good anyway to separate from those people who are bad anyway, right? then education in this model is socially wasteful. Why is education socially wasteful in this model? In what sense is it socially wasteful? Think of it from the point of view of an economist. In this model, the productivity of the workers doesn't change because of education, but some resources were used, right? Some resources were used by the good workers to get an education. Right? At the end of the day, the good workers are better off, the bad workers are worse off, all right? But that's, and, 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 and uh, employers are the same as they would have been otherwise, all right? But that's just redistribution, right? There's no product from education. Right? But resources, resources were wasted in education. Does that, that make sense? So in particular, in our two-year equilibrium, or in our three-year equilibrium, it was the good workers who went to college, or, went, or in this case went to business school, and they wasted three years at five apiece. Right? So there was a waste of 15, a waste of 10 in the two-year model. All right? According to this model, education is socially wasteful. How do we actually visualize that waste in society? So let's take the model seriously. Where is that waste manifested in society? Where's that waste manifested? Yeah. Yeah, so you guys aren't working, and where else is it manifested? You guys sitting here is part of the waste. You should be out you know, doing something else. And where else is the waste? Me, right? right, right. You should take all your, your Yale professors, stop using them as Yale professors and wasting those resources, and have us go out and till the fields. All right? Or drive taxes or something. All right? All right? All right? So there's a social waste here, right? And the, what we should do is, according to this model, is we should send the professors to drive taxes. Or dump trucks, I guess. I'm not claiming we'd be good at, at, at driving dump trucks. Our comparative advantage is certainly in teaching classes rather than uh, driving dump trucks. But it turns out in this model, teaching classes is a complete waste of time. All right? And therefore, you're better off using those resources to drive dump trucks. All right? Third, 
Notice that in this model, the result of education is what? It's good for the good workers. You guys manage to separate yourselves and get paid high wages. That's nice for the Yale graduates here, but who are the losers in this model? Who are the losers? The bad workers. The 90% of workers in, the, in this economy who aren't naturally gifted, who aren't going to find education easy, they in this model end up being paid 30 without the education system. How much would they have been paid? 32. All right? So this model increases inequality. In, in this model, education increases inequality, and it doesn't increase inequality in a benign way just by making the rich richer. It increases inequality by making the poor poorer. All right? Education in this model increases inequality. In this model, it actually hurts. It hurts the poor. Now that strikes me as a pretty important lesson, actually. Again, I don't think we should take this model too literally. In the real world, I at least hope that some of you are learning something at Yale. You're looking at me extremely doubtfully that you could possibly be learning anything at Yale. So maybe you're not, I don't know. Right? But in the real world, I'd like to believe people are learning something at Yale. But one of the things that's going on in education, in addition to learning, one of the things is that you guys are separating yourselves and signaling to employers that you're going to be, uh, that you're going to work, uh, uh, you're going to be good workers for them. As a consequence, that's great for you, but someone else is being paid less. This strikes me as an important lesson in, 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 to, to hear in an election year. In, in every election year in America, I've been in a few election years in America now. There are two things that all politicians agree on whether they're far right or far left. All politicians agree on two things. They agree that two things are good. One, kissing babies. Two, they all want to be, quote, the education president. Is that right? All of them. Is that right? Now, as a parent of some babies, I'm not sure I want to have politicians kissing babies, but that's, that, that's, that's for another day. All right? The point of here is, what we're learning, don't, don't go yet, guys. What we're learning here is that if education hurts the poor, maybe we shouldn't be so keen to decide that we should subsidize the education sector itself. Although as an educator, I hope you don't tell, anyone, tell that to anybody. Right? What's the takeaway message of this model then? The takeaway message is for education to work as a signaling device, to education to generate a separating equilibrium, some children have to be left behind. All right? All right? All right? We'll talk about that more on Wednesday. <laughs>